0: Let's begin today with a question. When you think about God, when you think about how God has been described to you, when you hear God talked about, is God ahead of you or is he behind you? Let's phrase that slightly differently. Do you think of God as someone or something that is drawing us back to the past, to the way things used to be? Or is God pulling us into the future? Or or let me ask it yet another way. Do you think that God thinks the best days of society and the world are are behind us in, in some sort of utopian past that is now gone? Or does God imagine that the best days of his creation are yet to come? Is God pushing us back or pulling us forwards? If you read the story or if you've been tracking with this series from the start, then you know that invariably, Jesus' opening line to potential disciples was, follow me. Like, follow me. Not get back over there, but follow me. So Jesus positioned himself ahead of us, calling us forward, pulling us into the future that he has for us. Now, if, as the Bible holds, Jesus is what we know about God, then we now know something about God. He's pulling us forward, calling us onward, encouraging us to progress. Is that how you think about God? You probably don't need me to tell you that this is maybe surprising. Religion generally and Christianity specifically seem to be overly working against moving forward, against progress, against exploring the future. Rather, it often seems that they have the opposite goal in mind. Like, we often, we see those religious groups that dress like it's, you know, 1850. But how many religions do you know that they they might dress normally, but their their whole belief system seems to be looking longingly backwards to a golden age that's now past. But Jesus is ahead of us. So what should a group of people that follow him be like? Well, in Mark's gospel, there's a strange little story that might help us with this. It goes like this in chapter nine and verse one. Jesus says to them, truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took Peter and James and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. And there he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking to Jesus. Peter said, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses and one for Elijah. And then Mark adds this little comment and he says, he did not know what to say because they were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly they looked around and they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. Now, This is a strange story, it's a a little unusual. It seems to be a moment where Jesus being transformed or transfigured as the story phrases it, is a way of communicating to those disciples that that Jesus is what he has been living out. The one sent of God to continue the work that Moses and Elijah had been preparing. It's a moment of Jesus being presently and visually caught up in God's kingdom. Like, like at his baptism, like at his baptism, we know right here as well that he is the Christ. But I think that it might be worth looking in the middle of this story, because there we see the human response to this scene. And it's interesting. It's interesting, I think, because it's all of us. It shows humans, it shows our, our religious hearts, our biases, our defaults. Like, notice what Peter says in the middle of the story. Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let's put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, I'm not sure where Peter's imagining that he and James and John are going to bunk, but he's definitely thinking that the best thing that they should all do is stay here. He talks about building shelters and that word, it, it kind of, it's the same word that we use for tents and also for dwelling places. So Peter is essentially saying, let's stay here. He's kind of saying, okay, if the three of us build tents for the three of you, then we can all stay here on this mountain, like we can do church here forever. Which is another way of saying, well, let's keep this to ourselves to just the six of us. There's something in the human soul that seems to want to keep things to itself. We want to build walls and fences so that what we have is always ours, which of course is another way of saying we don't want to let others in. So rather than being completely encapsulated by this incredible moment of spiritual transcendence, Peter is thinking about how we preserve it, how we keep it, how we make it exclusive to us. But notice how subtle this shift is. One minute, we're all looking at Jesus and what God is doing through him. And the next minute, we're not. We're talking about building tents, which to be fair, might sound like the right thing to do. It even sounds like the holy thing to do. The problem is it's the religious thing to do. And let's call it the religious shift. The small move from looking at Jesus to thinking about tents. It's minor, it's easily missed, but it transitions us from the active, dynamic, nimble process of following Jesus to now it becomes about preserving and protecting a moment. Bruxy Cavey says it like this, When faith becomes religion, people on the inside of the group begin to focus their attention on the perimeter, patrolling the boundaries to regulate who's in and who is out. They develop visible boundary markers, demarcations of holiness, which become important signs of group identity. It's the religious shift. One minute, Peter's looking at Jesus. The next, he's trying to lock it all down. But don't we all easily do that? We like things a particular way and we will do anything we can to preserve that. One minute, as the book of Hebrews tells us, we're fixing our eyes on Jesus. But the next minute, we're watching the fences. We're watching the fences we've built to see if they're protecting us and keeping the wrong people out. We stop focusing on the center and we start focusing on the borders, the boundaries, the perimeters why do we do this? Well, I think that Mark's gospel helps us understand that question right here in this story. Notice he throws a little parenthetical comment after Peter blurts out his tent building idea. Did you see it? He says he did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Fear isn't a great source of creative and progressive thinking. But fear can shape how we behave and process. Fear can be a huge dominant factor in all of our lives and very, very easily. Fear shuts us down. It locks us in. It shrinks us. It causes us to want to be safer and smaller. Fear closes down our minds. And and God gave us incredible minds. As Romans 12 and Ephesians 4 tell us, we can grow them and shape them and renew them but they're also so easily vulnerable to fear. And there's lots of fear in the world and people of faith aren't immune to it. Like we worry about what the future will be like for us, for our church, for our faith. But the danger is we start thinking in a preservation mindset rather than a mindset of continuing to follow and trust Jesus. And of course, it's easier for us to do that because we're looking at the edges and not the center. Like Peter, if we stop looking at Jesus, now we're thinking about something else. Like, I wonder if one of the things that Peter is thinking up there on the mountainside is, like, is this as good as it gets? Like, so let's stay here. Let's not move on from this. Which, of course, is another way of saying, we've arrived, we've got it all figured out. There's nothing more for us than this. And that's the difference between having an open mind that's willing to learn and a closed mind that already has it all figured out. It's the difference between being a dweller and being an explorer. And I understand that. It's nice here on this mountain, watching Jesus being transfigured, hearing God's voice. But Jesus didn't call us to be dwellers. He called us to be explorers. And that requires us to have open minds, learning attitudes, and a willingness not to close everything down and box everything in every chance we get. It's what Christianity over the years has called being a pilgrim. Someone who humbly knows that there's more to this. There's things and places to explore. There's new places to go. God's not done everything yet. This is not the end of the journey. However, when we do take our eyes off Jesus at the center and instead start to think about dwelling here, tenting ourselves here forever, something happens. We move from being humble pilgrims and become instead border patrol. And this is always the threat of our religiosity. We trade out our focus on Jesus and instead start to defend the perimeters. Is this why so many people's experience of Christianity or the church isn't? a group of people exploring what it means to follow Jesus, but rather a police force of folk ensuring that no one is breaching the rules or breaking through the borders. But Jesus didn't call the disciples and say, let's go police the perimeters together. Rather, he said, follow me. And that's what being Christian is always about. Not just following in yourself, but following is what you want for others too. The perimeters of our faith will always seem to be just a little bit blurry to us because Jesus is more interested in the trajectory of a person's life than where they are in relation to a borderline. Jesus never asks, are you in or are you out? But rather, he says, follow me. Which takes us back to the strange event on the hill. Peter wants to lock it down, preserve it, and live there. He wants to trade out being an explorer so that he can become a dweller. What's happened for Peter, and I think what happens to all of us when our religiosity takes over, is that we forget what Jesus said before, in this case, just five chapters earlier. In Mark chapter four and verse 21, Jesus says to them, do you bring a lamp to put it under a bowl or a bed? Instead, don't you put it on its stand? For whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed and whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out into the open. And then Jesus gives us that line that always reminds us to pay attention. If anyone has ears to hear, let them hear. Listen up, says Jesus. Now, this little one-liner is at the heart of Jesus' message of his kingdom. Jesus is the light. Now, light is a beautiful metaphor of God's love and grace because, well, because light shines and it shines indiscriminately. Light doesn't care about borders and perimeters or boundaries. It doesn't care whether you're in or out. It shines and because of it, you can see. But then we can see that there's another thing going on in this little parable. There may be a light, But if the light isn't on its stand, or more ridiculously, if the light's placed under a bowl or a bed, then no one can see it. And more significantly, they can't see anything else either. Now, Jesus is dealing in the absurd here because he lives in a world where creating light is difficult and expensive. Like, we don't always recognize this because we light empty houses rooms that no one's in. We even light our doorsteps up when we know that no one's coming to visit. In 1994, William Nordhaus calculated that to generate the light equivalent to one bulb running for one hour in the ancient era, around about the time of Jesus, someone would have to work for around 60 hours. So to fuel an old dim oil lamp for an hour came at the cost of several hours of work. Ergo, only a crazy person lights a lamp and then hides it. (laughs) Incidentally, 60 hours of work nowadays pays for around about 50 years of one bulb being lit. But do we cover over the light of Jesus by insisting on our border patrol-like activity? Like Peter, do we want to keep things as they are and not ever move on, but in doing so, we make it impossible for others to see? like pitching a tent, closing our minds, patrolling the borders. These are all quickly ways of behavior that make it harder and harder for anyone to encounter Jesus. Or we can keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, keep him at the center, refuse to camp on the hillside and instead follow him. And this is to uncover the lamp and place it somewhere that its light can be seen. Jesus seemed to understand that this would be hard for his followers, which is probably why he told so many parables about his surprising grace for everyone. He knew that our religiosity would want to get really clear borders to lock everything down, but he knew that we would prefer to dwell rather than explore but he's inviting us to put down our policing attitude and instead embrace a grace-soaked faith that embraces everyone that wants to follow him. Jesus is essentially directing us to be what you would call a centered set people and not a bounded set people. A UK farmer one day went to New Zealand and he went to the sheep farmer friend of his in New Zealand and had a tour of his farm. the UK farmer says to this New Zealand sheep farmer, how big is your farm? To which the New Zealand farmer says, well, you know, it kind of goes for several days that way and about a day and a half this way. To which the UK farmer says to the New Zealand farmer, how do you afford to build a fence to keep all of this safe? The UK farmer clearly is in some bounded set thinking. The New Zealand farmer says, well, we don't have a fence. To which the UK farmer says, but aren't you afraid that all the sheep will run away? You see, because fear is what makes us build fences. To which the New Zealand farmer responds, no, we have watering holes. The sheep know where the water is and they don't stray from that. The New Zealand farmer thinks about centered sets. If there's something that we can focus on, something that we know we need, this will draw us in the right place. Whereas the the British farmer is thinking about fences and how do we keep everyone in and it just doesn't work. Following Jesus seems to be a journey in being okay with blurry edges and a clear center. And this will shape the type of people we become more welcoming, more embracing, more hospitable, because we've rewired our way of thinking. Instead of preserving how things are, being shaped by fear, our values become following Jesus and working to ensure that we don't stop other people from following Jesus too. A marker point that you might be doing well at this is when religious people are shocked at how welcoming you are, and non-religious people are shocked how welcomed they are. Well, at least (laughs) that's what Jesus found. So, So Jesus is ahead of us. He's pulling us into a new way of thinking, a way of living that he calls his kingdom. But we're going to talk about that next week. The call to follow Jesus is a call to explore, to be led, to be in an adventure that's beyond the boundaries of what you thought possible. It's an invitation to set aside a bounded religious way of being and instead join a Jesus-centered way of life. In Romans chapter 8, St. Paul calls this being led by the Spirit. And when he says this, he's thinking back to that great moment in Israel's history when they had no religion, no temple, no rules, but God led them from slavery into freedom. So here's the story we find ourselves in. There will always be the opportunity to replace the dynamic journey of following Jesus with a tent to live in. But whenever we do this, we will quickly replace the grace-filled relationship of following Jesus with a religion of boundaries that excludes and rejects in its attempt to preserve the way things were. Or we can accept the invitation to be a different group of people, a community of grace who have accepted that God is pulling us toward him into the incredible future that he has imagined for, for us, for everyone, This is us letting Jesus' light shine in us and through us. Like if we do this, we'll reject our natural desire to police the perimeters of our faith. And instead we'll celebrate everyone who joins with us to follow Jesus. Because here's the thing, no matter how big your temple, how wide your border, how relaxed your rules, how comfortable your tent, or how polite your police force, God is still going to be ahead of you, doing something bigger and more expansive and inviting you to join in with him in that. That's the God we meet in Jesus. Not close-minded, afraid, and fenced in, but open-minded and welcoming. This is the God about whom Paul prayed while well, he prayed this in his letter to the Ephesians. Paul says, I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know that this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. That's the God the Bible describes to us. That's the God we meet in Jesus. So, As Paul then said to the Philippians, perhaps this is our blessing for today. May you shine like stars in the world. Grace and peace, my friends.